demons, faith, death, and taxes. Because um, that's life. That's, that's life. That's, you know, when we study God's word, it's important to remember the context and ask the question when we're going through the Bible, whatever we are studying, particularly in the Gospels, what happened just before this? So, yeah, we'll remember what Landon uh, talked on last week, which was the transfiguration. It was a supernatural moment in John 17. I'm sorry, Matthew 17. Um, God revealed his glory by manifesting the radiance of Jesus on the mountain and the persons of Moses and Elijah who represented the law. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. And uh, both of them foretold the death of Christ, the law, the prophets. It's interesting that the three of them were up there and the disciples were there to witness that, which Pastor Landon quoted that verse from Scripture, that they saw they were witnesses of his majesty. And I want to direct you to John 1.14. We'll have it, I do have it on the slide. You don't have to turn there because we'll be referring to several Scriptures today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. They saw the glorified Christ. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In life, we need the mountaintop experiences when everything's going well, you know, when we're praising God and it's smooth, you know, no problems. It's just really sweet. Maybe some fellowship is really sweet. Um, but we wouldn't appreciate those highs if we didn't have the lows. We don't like the lows. We don't like the tests and the trials and the temptations. We don't like going through them. But what does that usually do to a Christian? strengthens our faith. Why? It causes us to rely on God even more. And that's just human nature. You know, things are going well. We don't think to pray as often because not that we don't need God when things are going well. But I think when we go through those hard times, it reminds us, boy, I appreciated those other times. Um, Peter, James, and John were singled out. They were given a foretaste of heaven. Uh, they not only saw the glory of Jesus, but also a preview of the kingdom to be ushered in in power and majesty. It's hard to imagine, though, how they felt as they were privileged to, to catch this glimpse of this magnificent spectacle that Landon went through, the, the transfiguration that we talked about last Sunday. So then the, the, the clouds, the clouds enveloped them. God spoke. They fell face down, if you remember, to the ground, terrified at the beginning of uh, Matthew 17. And the key verse that leads us up to what we're going to study today is um, 17.5. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's for us, just like it was for the disciples. Listen to Jesus. How do we listen? Reading his word. The Holy Spirit sometimes puts something in your heart. The disciples received this command from God the Father. And Jesus actually, remember he had to touch them while they were on the ground. They were just probably, who knows, if they were cowering, but they said they fell to the ground and they had to be encouraged. Jesus said, don't be afraid. So 
It's interesting how many times Jesus says, fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And we don't think about what that means and what, they're just human just like us. The disciples were, right? So they're in the presence of a holy God. They saw some amazing things, miracles that are testified to, that are written down for us. A fraction, the Gospel of John says, particularly toward the end, we only have a fraction of the things that Jesus did and said. It's not a complete story that we have in the Bible, but we have enough. The signs, John writes, these signs I've given you so that you might believe in the name of Jesus. But there's unimaginable glory in the kingdom come. But here's something to remember throughout this message this morning and what this teaches, I believe, and probably what all from the, the, the prophets in advance to you know, Paul, the cross must come before the kingdom. The cross must come before the kingdom. Jesus had to go to the cross before, they were, before we all get to the kingdom one day, before the kingdom of God comes. The cross has to come first. And that's something that he continually reminds them. So down the mountain in John, uh, uh, Matthew 17, down the mountain, it was back to reality after this, you know, you've heard the expression mountaintop experience. Back to reality. Uh, they had to come back down to the sin-filled, demon-infested valley, right? But isn't that where we live? Look at our culture today. It is sin-filled and demon-infested. And here we are trying to be salt and light, and it's getting darker. But what does that mean? Not to isolate. That means continue to be salt and light for Christ because the darker it is for Christians, you're going to shine that much brighter the more the darkness increases. So maybe, just think about them as they're coming down the mountain. Maybe they had a deeper understanding of the, of the bondage and darkness from which Christ would eventually rescue the world. Um, but I was looking at some statistics through the CDC, Center for Disease Control. Recent stats show that death from suicide, alcohol, and drugs have hit their highest level ever. But isn't that interesting? How do you explain that in light of the fact that today we have some of the most educated minds that we've ever had on this planet? The technological advancements, the conveniences, the, the scientific discoveries, medical discoveries, leisure time, entertainment, and the wealth of nations as a whole. And yet death from suicide, drugs, and alcohol has never been higher. How do you explain that? I think we're putting our focus on the wrong things. Those things will never satisfy. What Hollywood says will make you happy, guaranteed to leave you empty. It might give you a little bit of happiness for a minute, but joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, of the, spirit. the joy of the Lord. We focus on happiness. It's it depends on circumstances, right? It depends on our paycheck or... or I don't know, some ridiculous things like the Packers winning or something stupid like that. Um, but that our, ha oh, we're happy. You know, things are going well. You know, whatever happens in your family or the culture or whatever, or the news. Oh, that's a happy story. But that is not lasting, is it? But the joy of the Lord is our strength. So 
What does the Bible say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Only he has the power to overcome the darkness of this age. And only Jesus satisfies. What do they do? Hollywood, they end up, you know, they have fame, money, power. But they lack fulfillment and peace and joy. And it drives them to medication or meditation that is not our God, the only, only true God. So let's go to Matthew 17 and read, starting in verse 14. That was free. That was just the intro. <laughs> verse 14, and I'll read from the New King James. And when they had come to the multitude, so we don't know how much time elapsed there. We don't know how much time, how, how far the mountain was, and they came down, how much time was there, but they had come to the multitude a man came to him, kneeling down and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. When he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, The sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Yeah, that's, there's so much in here, so let's get right to it. Let's start with the words when they had come to the multitude in 1714. Um, the transfiguration took place. You don't know how long it took for them to get down to the valley. You have to wonder, uh, Peter, James, and John, what were they thinking? Were they, were they talking to one another, or was it just silence? They were coming down the mountain. After what they just saw on that mountain, I don't know what I would do. I don't, I, I don't think I'd be saying a word. <laughs> they were coming down this mountain, trying, probably trying to process what they just saw and just the amazing experience they had. And so 
they come down and arrive at this chaotic scene, the multitude, right? And this man comes running up, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic. So this, uh, I think Mark points out, this particular boy's epileptic symptoms were demonic in origin. And Mark's gospel mentions the boy was also made deaf and dumb by the demon, which is interesting. And the man says, so I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't cure him. Here's one point we can bring out from this. They couldn't do it. Sometimes Jesus' followers fail, but Jesus never fails. We are his followers. Sometimes we'll fail. That, first of all, let me parenthetically insert, that doesn't make us failures if we fail. But Jesus never fails. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the man was wise for going straight to Jesus when his followers couldn't do it. He was that desperate to heal his son or to get his son help. Now, on previous occasions, this is interesting, the disciples did cast out demons, and yet here they couldn't. This is because there are ranks of demonic powers, which we, I don't fully understand, but there are ranks of demons, apparently. Some are stronger than others. Some are more stubborn than others. I think of Ephesians 6, verse 12, when Paul talks about put on the full armor of God. He says in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But what do we wrestle with as believers? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. So there are different demonic ranks, and they'll try to get to us. We're praying this morning before service, and you're welcome to join us at um, 8.45 upstairs. We call it the upper room. Liz just said that this morning. I thought, yeah, the upper room. It's a library in a room that we for meeting, but it's kind of cool. So Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. And there's a very real spiritual, there's warfare that goes on all the time if, in the realm of the spirit, if we could just get a glimpse of it sometimes. Um, so in Matthew 10.8, don't turn there, but the disciples were given authority to cast out demons previously, and they did. Jesus sent them out. Um, here's what, a couple points we can take away from their failure here, this momentary failure. Um, it was good for them, and these are teaching teaching moments for us, I think teaching moments for Jesus and this, what he taught them, but they learned a few things. I've got four of them here. It taught them not to get into the rut of mechanical ministry. It taught them the great superiority of Jesus. He could do what man could not. It taught them to wish for the presence of Jesus and Another thing we don't know is how long were they in this chaotic scene, this multitude? Uh, who knows how long they were trying to cast them out, what they were trying, if they were rebuking. How long were they there? It could have been, was it an hour? Was it a couple hours? What is, what is it all day? You know what I mean? We don't know these little nuggets, and you know we're not meant to know. But you have to think, they were trying to cast out this demon and help this man's son, and they couldn't do it, so they kept trying. I'm sure they took turns. There were nine of them, right? Because the other three were up on the mountain, so they kept taking turns. They couldn't do it. So they, it taught them to say, oh, well, I wish Jesus were here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and it also taught them uh, to come to Jesus with the problem, like the man did. 
So how might this encourage us, us today? I have a quote from William Barclay. He said this. It's up on the, the screen there. It's easy to feel Christian in the moment of prayer and meditation. It's easy to feel close to God when the world is shut out. But that is not religion. That is escapism. Real religion is to rise from our knees before God to meet men and the problems of the human situation. Isn't that good? It's easy to be alone in our quiet times where we can get fed by the word and read and have a sweet time with the Holy Spirit and speaking to us through the scriptures. Or maybe when we're on a retreat, just gathering together and it's wonderful to have prayer. But what Jesus said, go. We're supposed to go out and we're supposed to minister, and there is some darkness. That's why we need to be in the Word. That's why we need to be prayed up, to be prepared for what we're going to encounter. So uh, Jesus responded. This is interesting. Faithless I get, but he used the word perverse. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Uh, in Mark's gospel, it, it has Jesus is saying, how long shall I put up with you? It's, it's interesting that it shows maybe a little bit of a sense of Jesus' frustration with his disciples. Could he, he has taught them. He's taught them. He's lived before them. He set an example, and he gave them direction to go out. He empowered them to go and do these things, but they couldn't do it. It's interesting. But maybe also Jesus was understanding that they didn't get it yet, but his season of ministry on the earth was coming to an end soon. He knew it. They didn't. And maybe he was disappointed the disciples didn't have more faith. But earlier in his ministry, and we have this scripture up from Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 5, Jesus sent them out. And I'm just going to read this for you real quick. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. So the demonic realm is very real just because we only catch a we don't even catch a glimpse of it. I was going to say in, in movies in Hollywood they'll try to portray what they think is spiritual warfare but it is very real um, but he said he gave them the power to cast out demons um, if you can go to the next slide and um, the scripture is up there but Jesus rebuked the demon delivered the demon possessed boy instantly so that shows us another thing that Satan cannot stand before the rebukes of Christ so Jesus lets them know why they couldn't cast it out, simply because of their unbelief. So to be successful in battle against demons, there must be complete trust in the Lord God who has complete authority over the demons and the de demonic realm. And then Jesus said, you know, some things are obtained by a stronger faith, by more fervent prayers. That's why Jesus mentions fasting, but it's another teaching moment, and Jesus said in verse 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed, which was the smallest, another gospel teaches us, the smallest of all the garden plants available, the smallest seed, if you have that much faith, and you, we kind of look at that and go, 
boy, that's not very much. Just that little bit of faith? That's all I need. Does that mean I don't have even that much? They couldn't cast them out, you know? So the faith that we have, or that we must have, has more to do with what kind of faith it is instead of how much faith there is. A small amount of faith, like a mustard seed, a very small seed, can, ac- can accomplish great things if it is placed in the power of the mighty God. According to Jesus, true faith always involves surrender to the will of God. And here's another nugget we can take from this and learn and apply in our lives. What matters most is who or what our faith is in, and that is the object of our faith. Not how much faith we have, but the object of our faith. And sometimes we fall into the trap of believing in ourselves. What does the world say? Believe in yourself. Trust in yourself. Go with your gut. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. No. (laughs) I mean, to have confidence is one thing. To have confidence in who we are, who Christ made us to be, the new creations we are, that's one thing. But to believe in ourselves, I just don't like that expression anymore. Because who are we supposed to put our faith completely in? Yeah, that's where the true power is. Not in how much faith we have, but in the object of our faith. All right. So he said, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there in verse 20. Uh, So Jesus here, in effect, calls faith an uprooter of mountains. Now that was a phrase, I didn't realize this. It was apparently known, very well known to the Jewish In Jewish schools, the rabbis really knew this as far as uprooting mountains. So they knew this expression. So um, it's interesting that not everybody got that, but Jesus, I'm sure his disciples did too then. It's mountain-moving faith, uprooting mountains, a phrase that they were very familiar with, uh, apparently. So he also said this kind, the demon, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So I'm sure the disciples prayed, but sometimes... You need to fast. And this is something I want to be better at in my own uh, spiritual life, my own Christian life. Fasting is hard. Self-denial is hard. Um, But I think it's important whether that's... And it's not always food. Don't starve yourself for a week, you know. Um, You can. But you can fast technology. You can fast, I don't know, one of your favorite things to do for entertainment. Fast that. Maybe you can fast your... If you, any of you still do go to Starbucks, you know, don't <laughs> go somewhere else. I won't get into that. <laughs> uh, you know, you know what they stand for, what they're corporately, what they believe and what they support. So don't go to Starbucks. But that's just a reminder. There's so many things we can deny ourselves. What did Jesus say? Satisfy yourself. No, deny yourself. And so these things, these demonic things sometimes, and if someone has really some major issues, some major problems you're dealing with. Maybe it's a a health issue that it's ongoing, ongoing, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Maybe it's time to fast for that person. And I'm speaking here, I'm just talking to myself too because it's a good reminder that that's a tool we have in our arsenal, so to speak, that great power comes from that when you're in prayer and fasting, when you deny yourself things of this world or habits or entertainment or 
social media or something. That's hard for some of us that are so active on everything's there. We keep in touch with so many people. Just cut it off and pray and say, Lord, use me to help be a healing balm for this person, to, to lift up this person. And hopefully God will work. But so by prayer and by fasting. So we show our faith and reliance on God through prayer and fasting. It also displays an occupation with and dependence upon him when we're in those moments. I mean, just try skipping a few meals and your stomach's going to, your body's going to yell at you, feed me, you know. So those are moments where you say, all right, Jesus, I know you said man does not live by bread alone, right? So prayer and fasting demonstrate four things. One, great willingness to identify with the afflicted person. In this, came, in this case, it was someone that was oppressed by a demon. So great willingness, our willingness to, be, to identify with the afflicted person, someone that's really hurting, someone that really needs prayer. Number two, great appreciation of the strength and the reality of the demonic world. Number three, prayer and fasting demonstrate great dependence upon God. And four, a great desire to fight and to sacrifice, to do without something or some things for the sake of deliverance. Charles Spurgeon said, He that would overcome the devil in certain instances must first overcome heaven by prayer and conquer himself by self-denial. Great quote from Spurgeon. So, more time elapsed in this passage we're in. Let's move on to verse 22. Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23. It says, Now, while they were staying in Galilee, that's why we don't know how much time transpired between coming down the mountain, the chaotic scene in the multitude, and healing the demonic, the the boy that was uh, possessed by a demon. And now here they are in Galilee. While they were staying at some point, It says, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So Jesus looks again to the goal. What is Hebrews 12, 2 said? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and has now sat down at the right hand of of, of the throne of God. For the joy, joy, not happiness, for the joy that was set before Jesus. He endured the cross. So he's telling them again, trying to get them to understand why he came and that he wasn't going to be with them forever. And apparently they had a hard time grasping the meaning. So many times throughout the scriptures, they're like, what? Remember Peter rebuked them? We did that about a month ago. We're going through that portion in Matthew. Peter said, no way, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus had to say, get, be, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. So Jesus, again, talks about his death and resurrection. Frequently, we don't know how many times, again, what we have in the Gospels is not all-inclusive of everything that Jesus said and taught. It's just enough for us to know enough to believe and to be able to understand a little bit more. But he told them about his suffering. And it's interesting. They either didn't believe him or they forgot the times he'd mentioned this before. 
We're not sure exactly. It's interesting. Um, so remember the angel had to remind the women at the empty tomb of uh, Jesus on the resurrection day. Let me go to Luke 24, 6 through 8. Remember this? When they said, I think we have this scripture up there too. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And then other times he would go into more detail. They will spit on him and torture him and beat him. He would go into detail, Mark and I think in other places. But here he keeps it very simple. Son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on third day rise again. So he told them again and again, and the angel made it a point. He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you. And it's interesting in this this passage of scripture here, um, where are we here? They were deeply grieved. That's what the NASB says. Uh, New King James says they were exceedingly sorrowful. But he did remind them over and over. So maybe they didn't, they didn't really understand because if you think he must be raised up on the third day, they knew what that meant. But I'm not sure they either heard it or grasped it. Do you know what I mean? Because that's the hope. If he just said, I'm going to be handed over to sinful men and they're going to kill me. I can understand then their response of being exceedingly sorrowful. I can understand then you've got God in the flesh living with you for three years, walking with you, leading you, teaching you, doing amazing miracles that you witnessed. And then he says, I'm going to be handed over to sinful men and I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. So if, they, if he just said that, I can understand the response. But he said, and then on the third day, he will be raised again. I will rise. You would think that they would go, really? You know, so we don't know how they thought, how they processed all this. I don't know how I would process this if I was you know, there at that time. But we might com- conclude that they didn't really comprehend it because they just saw the glory of Jesus Jesus in his glory and God the Father speak on the mountain. And so they caught a glimpse of it, the glimpse of the glory to come. In um, Mark 9.32 it says, But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him about it. That's what Mark 9.32. They did not understand this saying about being crucified and, and dying, being buried, and on the third day being raised up. But they didn't ask him about it. I wonder why. Were they embarrassed about the evil faith or your unbelief? So they just didn't ask. Interesting. Um, So the message John the Baptist preached to prepare the way for the Messiah was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus sent his disciples out preaching the same thing about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. He sent them out to preach. But we learn an important lesson here again, and I'll rem- just the sovereignty, God's sovereignty, his timing, his perfect will. The cross must come before the kingdom. The cross must come before the glory. The suffering must come before the glory. 
So that's what it's like sometimes, bringing it back to our lives here and, and trying to understand we live in the valley in life, so to speak. We, we have to bear our cross and look ahead, sometimes with mustard seed faith, right? Seeking first the kingdom of God. One of the things we prayed upstairs this morning was that we would all be better at, and this is very hard in this culture in which we live, we must all be better at cultivating an eternal perspective. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. I think, I I just shared that this last week. I was in Green Bay running an errand, and I went too far on this road, so I had to do a turnaround, and I couldn't do a complete U-turn, so I had to turn into where? A cemetery. And I've got this fascination with cemeteries and different tombstones, and that's the end of man, every man, right? We're going to be, if Jesus doesn't return before we die, all of us will be either in a box in the ground in a cemetery or we'll be cremated, whatever it might be, and we won't be here. But that's a reminder for us to cultivate an eternal perspective. We have one day at a time, and it's so easy to take it for granted and get so far ahead. Well, what's your 10 and 20 year plan? <laughs> and like, I don't just, I'm going to trust the Lord today. And then tomorrow I'll get up, I'll get in the Word, I'll say, God, help. Help me to trust you more. And it's just one day at a time. You know, I, I don't know if I ever shared this, but I had a sister who died when she was 24 years old. And her and my brother-in-law, they were married for three years. They got in an accident. Um, and 24 years old. And that, for some reason, and I wasn't a Christian at that time. We grew up Catholic. And f- I learned a lesson that God, by his mercy, allowed me to get when I was a young boy. Um, I don't very often ask why about anything in life. I just don't say, why, God? Honest, my dad died when he was 62. You know, I've gone through some troubles in my life, not major health issues, different things. It's this earth. It's this, we, our citizenship is in heaven. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. One day at a time is all we have. And she was 24. I knew a neighbor of ours. She died when she was 16. You know, so we have to number our days as the scriptures teach us, but it's hard because all we have, all we see is this life, right? So I know I'm kind of getting off the topic, but it comes back to suffering in this life. We live in the valley, not the valley in Fox City's valley, but you know what I mean? In California, we used to live out there. There was a valley. We lived out there in the valley for a short time. Um, So let's get back to uh, Matthew 17. We're going to wrap this up in a minute. But we have to bear our cross and look ahead, cultivate that eternal perspective, pray and do our best to walk in the will and the Spirit of God. And that's hard when you live with other human beings on this earth, isn't it? Sometimes it's your family. The biggest tests <laughs> come from your family. The tests of your faith and your patience. Sometimes it's where if you go to school. Sometimes it's at your job. Sometimes it's out in public. You know, but we are tested because we live in this this imperfect, immoral valley of life. So Matthew seventeen twenty four through twenty six. Now it's tax time, and it is 
for us. It's tax time. So and it's an appropriate uh, passage to end with today. Uh, Peter was asked if his teacher paid the temple tax. Now, this was a normal tax, it, or it was a fee that was applied to every Jewish man. Payment could be made in person, or it could be made at the Passover festival in Jerusalem. But collections for this tax were made in other areas of Palestine, and you know, even up to a month earlier, collections for this tax. This incident, therefore, takes place about a month before Passover. Jesus explained that he is not liable to pay this tax because the father doesn't require it of his own son. What does that mean? Rabbis were exempt from paying this tax. And priests in Jerusalem, in the temple, they were exempt. And whose house was the temple? It was God's house. Remember, he came in angry and turned over the, the money changers, the tables of the money changers, and said, how dare you make my father's house into a marketplace, into a business? Get these things out of here. It was his father's house. So Jesus obviously was exempt from paying this tax. And another thing, go back to uh, verse 25. 25. Oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry, 20. Okay, I know, I was reading, I'm looking at the different wording I'm getting. Oh, wait a minute, I read from the New King James, where it says um, Peter came into the house, and Peter was just talking to the guy about paying taxes. Notice, Peter comes into the house, Jesus was in the house, he wasn't with Peter, Who's the first one to speak? Jesus. Well, only God could possibly know what was spoken down in the marketplace or in town, right? Jesus knew. He said, Simon, let me ask you a question. And he started asking about money, about the taxes. Isn't that an interesting nugget there that's revealed? Jesus spoke first. He knows. He knows. So he explained that he is not liable to pay this because the father doesn't require it of his own son, but he pays it anyway. Um, he was not obligated, and he also recognized the importance of n avoiding needless controversy. So they knew him. A lot of them call, a lot of them call uh, Jesus a teacher or a rabbi, and so they knew he was a holy man or some thought he was a prophet or whatever, but they, let's just go with teacher or rabbi they're supposed to be exempt from this tax, but he didn't want to cause a controversy, so he said, Peter, go ahead and pay it for the two of us. But um, he recognized that, but also uh, Jesus is saying, we must do our duty so as not to set a bad example. So we rarely look at the context of Peter being, check this out, he's a professional fisherman. Can you imagine? He probably goes to the same fishing hole on the Sea of Galilee or, or there every time they go out. They had the big boats, right? And the massive nets. He was a professional fisherman. What does Jesus say? Go cast a hook. You know? So he go, he, he's going, man, I hope my friends aren't around. He, he's going back to when he was 10, casting a hook. He's a professional fisherman. I thought that was interesting. So he's trying to avoid embarrassment, but he goes and casts a line instead of going out in a boat and uh, Jesus said take that 
in the mouth of a fish. Notice that the fish didn't swallow it, too. That's interesting. I don't know if it means anything. Did you ever think about that? This fish didn't swallow the coin. So here's this fish swimming around the Sea of Galilee with a coin in its mouth and didn't swallow it. Uh, I thought that was kind of cool. So, so Peter gets the fish. There's the coin. It's not every day, I would think, that someone catches a fish and there's a coin in its mouth. <laughs> Enough to pay taxes for two people, at least. So verse 24 tells us something uh, that we often miss. Um, the tax was only required of Jesus and Peter because it was a collection in their home city of Capernaum. I thought that's interesting, the city taxes, and I don't know if they had outside tax, temple taxes, whatever else. But Peter and Jesus, for a time, were residents of Capernaum. So I thought that was interesting. Only Peter and Jesus were residents there, so that's why the guy came and asked Peter, hey, are you guys going to pay taxes? One final point, maybe Jesus... Um, paying Peter's tax was a foreshadowing of the work of redemption for all men. He's paying a debt that Peter owed. He paid for himself and he paid for Peter. It's a foreshadowing of, of redemption, I thought. That was kind of cool. Um, this is one word we use to describe the, the story of the Bible, the true story of history. From Genesis to Revelation, it is redemption. It is about redemption about how God redeemed mankind. So let's go to this definition here. Oh, you got it up. Thank you. One of my favorite uh, dictionary versions is 1828, Webster's 1828, uh, before meanings and words were defined and redefined to make them conform to our culture today. Redemption, the Latin word redemptio, repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. Isn't that interesting that sin can sometimes hold us captive and prisoner and bondage, right? Redemption, repurchase of captured goods or prisoners, the act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. And I also like the word ransom, release, deliverance from bondage, distress, or from liability to any evil. I, never, I don't think I ever looked up the definition of redemption before. Um, Ephesians 1.7 simply says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. What was one of the first worship songs we sang this morning? There is power in the blood of Christ. It is power because that blood covers us from our sins. That's why communion is so important to examine ourselves. So thank you, Jesus, for redemption. Let's recap real quick. In this passage from Scripture, uh, Matthew 17, we began on the mountain. We caught a glimpse of heaven's glory, the transfiguration. But we can't stay on the mountain because in reality, much of life is in the valley where we deal with unbelief and trials and spiritual warfare. And we are instructed to listen to Jesus, the beloved Son of the Father. Some good things can happen in the valley when our faith is tested. We can learn. We can get stronger. It causes us to rely on the Lord. Some people do get healed even in the valley. Um, then we're reminded that things, well, when Jesus predicted his death and suffering, before the glory of the resurrection, we're reminded that things often can get worse before they get better. The cross 
has to come before the kingdom. Um, suffering sometimes must precede, well, future glorification. We're all going to be resurrected, right? The resurrected body, that's our hope in Jesus. Um, Romans 8.18, we will suffer in this life. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but, I always read the buts in the Bible, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. And if our faith is in him, guess what? We can overcome the world. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, temporary time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Chew on that one for a while. And let's wrap up with Psalm 84. You can turn there. Psalm 84, starting in verse 5. There's one thing, there's so many, you could do a whole study on this psalm, but there's a couple things to get from it. It says, Psalm 85, I'm sorry, 84, verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Becca, they make it a spring. What is the valley of Becca? It literally means weeping, tears, grief, trials. One thing I want you to get from this, notice it says passing through. When you're going through this horrific trial, don't stop. Don't pitch a tent and get comfortable with your, with your valley. Don't accept it as, oh, it must be the Lord's best for me. Press on, trust the Lord, seek first his kingdom, pass through the valley of weeping and tears, this valley of Becca. Don't build a Hilton hotel, start a business. Pass through that valley. The rain also covers it with pools. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Isn't that true? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now that verse 11, you're thinking, no good thing Define good thing. Will he withhold from those who walk uprightly? If you are living with him, in him, trying to walk uprightly, it, it's, that's a promise. There's no good thing will he withhold. Our idea of good things are often on the temporary moments or pleasures of this life. His idea of good things is salvation, a glorified body, resurrected in his presence forever, eternal life. We're on this short time frame of, of eternity here in how, whenever you were born 
Here's when it started. Then it's when you were born. And here's 2019. And we don't know how much further this timeline is going to go before the return of Christ. But we see this. He says, no good thing. He's, he's going, this is good. When Jesus returns, that's the good thing. I will not withhold from you. So when you're passing through the valley, make it a spring. You've heard the expression, when, God, or when, when life gives you a lemon, make lemonade. You've heard that, right? That's this idea here, passing through the valley of Becca, weeping, tears, they make it a spring. So be encouraged today because suffering has to precede joy and glory, oftentimes in this life. But we have been given everything we need as believers in Christ. Uh, Peter tells us and others in the word, we've been given everything we need to live this life, not just to get by or to struggle or to barely make it, but to live in victory. We have it. We have him, right? Let's pray. God, there's so much here, Lord, and I ask that you'd help us to uh, process and remember what you would have us uh, learn and apply to our lives. We thank you for the encouragement that um, suffering often must come before glory. And uh, we just thank you that you are with us every step of the way. In the good times in life, in the hard times in life, on the mountaintop, and in the valley. You are with us, and you will never leave us or forsake us. And we thank you for the hope that we have in you, in eternal life, and everything you've done for us on the cross that you promised, you predicted, and you fulfilled it. Thank you, Lord God. We praise you for this day. We thank you again for this time that we can worship you. We can come before you and hear you speak to us through your word. And uh, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, lead us on today and in this week and wherever we go to work and to fellowship and to just do what we do one day at a time, Lord, we pray that we would have even a greater trust in you and that our faith would not be in how much we believe but in the object of our faith, and that is you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.